Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter, and today I'm joined by Tron Dundheim. Uh, Trond is uh, a new contact of mine just over the pandemic, and but a brilliant guy. I was a guest on his podcast, Futurize, which you'll hear about today. But he described himself as a futurist. And when I first heard the term, I thought, wow, okay. So let's explore a bit about that. And when we go into the exploration, there's some fascinating pieces about no one knows the future, but we can have a thought about the consequences of possible futures. And that's what I love about not only Futurizer's podcast, but his other thinking and his work. And we're going to explore that. We're going to go into the immersive learning process that he has, uh, that he calls his life. He describes himself as a jack of all trades. But his immersive learning process means that he goes into many different things in great depth. Great thinker. Loves this conversation. I look forward to hearing your feedback on how you enjoyed it as well. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a new contact of mine, one that I've uh, been fascinated to talk to already, but today I'm fascinated for, to have him share about himself and about his thoughts. Uh, Trond Arno Untheim is a futurist, podcaster, investor, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and also a former director of the MIT Startup Exchange based outside of Boston, and he has helped launch over 50 startups. So Trond, welcome. Thank you for being on. Thank you, Colin. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, I enjoyed so much our conversation just a little while ago, which is coming up on on my podcast, Futurized, in a, in a little while. Yeah. Tell us a bit about yourself, Trond. I mean, Futurized is where we met, but tell us a bit more about yourself. Um, I don't know what there's to tell. Maybe there is a little bit to tell. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a jack of all trades. I've done a lot of things, as you pointed out. Uh, the, the challenge with being a jack of all trades is that we tend to do a lot of things at the same time. This can be somewhat frustrating for people around us, um, but it does have a benefit. Uh, first of all, it makes me happy, right? So I've yeah. done uh, a bunch of different things, not just sort of to sample things, but really my learning process is very immersive and I'm not very good when I'm learning in a non-immersive way. So really, I treat my career, I guess, a little bit like a learning journey. Nice. I don't find uh, uh, that there's kind of a rhyme or reason to where I've been in my career. And I've, you know, worked in every type of organization, whether it be government, or think tanks, I've started companies and uh, I've worked for large multinationals, universities. I've pretty much been around the block. And now I, you know, I work as an investor, both on the corporate side and for a small uh, or for a seed early stage uh, kind of seed stage fund. So, I guess my life is all about learning. And I think that is really what ties in the experiences that, that I have. And maybe that's very easily explained because I come from a, uh, you know, my, both my parents were teachers of sorts, you know, university and, and even elementary school. So nice. No, and we we have that in common. My prof grandfather was a professor of theology, and as we talked about before, you knew you know his work. So it's it's that piece about curiosity and learning that's interesting. I'm I'm fascinated by a couple of things. I'd, I'd love to talk about the Futurized podcast because that was that was almost a a new uh, a new avenue, a new journey for you, which you started. It's the hundredth podcast episode coming up. Is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm super excited and it's been one year of podcasting and 
there's actually a be more wrong aspect to it, which I'll, uh, which I was going to get into later. But since you brought it up, yeah, I mean, the whole reason I started the podcast was out of failure, which I'll get to, you know, much later. But I wanted to tee that up. I mean, mm. nothing starts at, a, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, I started it because I was in a transitional moment, uh, but also interestingly, <laughs> I mean, it is almost a failure that I started it that late. So I have come to realize that I love audio and conversation so much. And especially given this learning journey of mine, Colin, it's, I cannot believe how many conversations I have had over the past 20 years in my life mm. that were professional conversations that could have been recorded and could have been podcasts. So nice. why I didn't come up with this before, I consider it a personal <laughs> failure of grand, grand proportion. <laughs> yeah, to be the father of the podcast would have been a great place. Yeah, to yes, do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you were a futurist, you know, and you just started a podcast a year ago, that's already set up. That's a failure in and of itself. <laughs> I always remember one of my colleagues he was attending a strategy and forecasting workshop. And um, the day before the email came through saying, unfortunately, the, the workshop is canceled due to unforeseen for circumstances. And I always just love that. It always makes me smile when I think that. So talk to me about the, the future and the futurist, because for people listening, they might say, so what is a futurist? And it's how you label yourself. Talk to me about that. Well, first off, it's a fairly new label for me. And the only reason I could is that I stepped out of academia for a moment, uh, mm -hmm. probably only for a moment, uh, because in academia, you can't really call yourself a futurist. It's not a serious title, you know, in that sense. But to, when you're going to actually have a message to people, and that, that is what you talk about, plus you, you know, maybe run some consulting efforts, uh, it, it is a label that has a meaning in the commercial sphere. And I actually find it an important role to take and I'll explain what it is but but just as a caveat you know it's not an academic title in no. in you know in any meaningful sense right because no one knows the future mm -hmm. so what a futurist really at least smart futurists they don't really predict the future or attempt to do so you know what we do is we talk about the consequences of possible futures right so we paint pictures mm -hmm based on driving forces that we do spend some time identifying. And, and there can be academic or not academic underpinnings to the frameworks you use sort of to look at forces. But I'm, I'm kind of a historically bounded futurist. Like the only reason I think I know a little bit about the future is that I have assembled a lot of experiences, uh, you know, around technology and how it has failed or succeeded. And I've studied history and also recent history. So, you know, what a futurist does is really just remind people who are mostly, you know, I guess in leadership positions in companies and governments about the consequences of their actions or inactions. And uh, consequences of actions or inactions. It's interesting because one of the things obviously would be more wrong is that if, it, if you live it as a principle is to act is the key thing. Yeah, whatever that is and actually learn from it and work with it. So to make a decision. Yeah. And one of the things in my mind is that I almost have a mantra in my head, which is, is I don't do history because in theory, like Talib said in his anti-fragile and black swan, he said, it is very difficult to predict the future from the past. So talk to me a bit about the, the action based on history, because I'm fascinated. I think there is a role for it, but what's your view on it? 
Well, I just, well, first of all, to be uh, honest, be more wrong, I think is a, is a great topic uh, mm-hmm. in and of itself. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, because I think we do need to be more wrong, I don't think people should seek being wrong, but I think the potential once you are wrong and realize that you are wrong to try to dig in to figure out why you are wrong or other people are wrong, it's just much more interesting as a learning experience. But mm-hmm. to your question about history, I find that History is a teacher only because, you know, we disagree about our history and we will always disagree. But, um, you know, if you think about the future absent history, you end up just talking about uh, either the sky is falling or all of these shiny objects. And either is just a mistake, I think, you know, for a futurist, because you need to anchor it in meaningful things that exist in society, right? Technologies don't just show up. Um, And, you know, when I think of history in that sense, what I mean is just examples, for example, you know, of technologies and and some that succeeded and and didn't succeed for, you know, as an, just a small example. And then I think history can be a guide because you can sort of look at product launches that failed and you can think back and, and try to argue, well, you know, that product was introduced so early and didn't really, wasn't really explained well, or it was never tested with real human beings. So it looked fantastic and, and failed. And there are many, many of those. And even, you know, the top companies of our day, you know, the Amazons and, and you know, they, they try to phone, I guess, you know, there are so many products that, you know, they were failures mm-hmm. historically, but they brought the company one step closer to some other more successful products. So that's just in in product development. But I think history, I think history is a great teacher, but I also think history, you know, um, you can't just assume that history is a teacher that teaches you, uh, you know, one straight path. There there are so many lessons to take from reflecting on a country's history or a company's history or your own individual history. I just think it's part of being uh, a human being, but I, but it's not as simple as that. Right. No, no. Yeah. I know. And we've got a classic example with Brexit at the moment in the UK, which it's, you know, I think in my personal opinion, we've failed the, the, uh, the exam, but I'm not sure that anybody really could have understood the exam question to start with, or could have understood everything that was involved in that. So I'm with you. I think it's about the, the, the learning and and picking up certain learnings about how we deal with the future and make our decisions like it. So talk to me about the sailing the ship out of the harbor, because I, I normally ask this question, and then um, I have somebody who maybe has had three sails the ships out of the harbor examples, but you seem to have done so many. It would probably be difficult for you to pick, which is the the story you want to tell us, but you've got one in your mind? Um, yeah, I actually had a couple, but let's start with this one and see how it goes. So a while yeah. back... Uh, I was given the opportunity to go down, you know, from Norway to the EU as one of the very few people, because Norway is not a member of the EU, but we do have this uh, national expert program where we work for, you know, three to four years in a European commission uh, as essentially a somewhat diplomatic post, but that sounds very flashy because when you get down there, of course, you're not a member state and you are the lowest possible, (laughs) you know, you're just one step up from an intern. But the interesting thing is, you know, anything can happen when you, when you are in that system. And I happen to be thrown a bunch of, you know, R and D project to manage. And in the middle of it was a consulting 
project. And the EU, you know, certainly has a lot of those. They try to dig into various things. And this one was about building a knowledge platform for e-government across Europe and very big ambitions. Um, I took it over mid-project. It had about apparently 100 passive users. And most people just said, you know, pick this project up. Nothing's going to happen there. They've spent half the money. It's over. And we didn't succeed. So they said, essentially, just, you know, we're giving it to you because nobody wants it. <laughs> nice. nice. And, and I said, well, okay. Um, started working on it. Um, and, you know, after a little while, figured out that I could partner with some guy in another you know, unit of the EU and we could just join forces. Suddenly we had double the money and we could start doing face-to-face -face events. Of course, then everyone said, don't, that's not worth it. Don't, don't do these face-to-face -face events. You're building a digital platform. So, and it's across Europe. So this is never going to work. And we didn't listen to them and did, you know, started doing monthly face-to-face -face events in Brussels and I guess, uh, in a couple of other places, but mostly in Brussels, people start showing up and uh, as success came to this initiative, people were also sharing because we'd said, you know, let's everyone just share, including, you know, um, not just your successes, but to your point, also the failures. You know, how hard is it really to build an e-government project? You know, uh, and it's very hard because, you know, it's government money. It's like slow, it's expensive and a lot of failure points. Suddenly, people started flocking to this platform, to the events and to the platform. So as success came, all of the leaders, including the ones that had given me the project said, please don't do this. Stop interfering in all of our stuff. And, you know, it's becoming a problem because my boss knows about it now. So essentially every bit of the way, everyone said, please don't do this anymore. <laughs> and at the end of it, we had 100,000 active wow. users across Europe. And, you know, I left the EU, went on to Oracle, actually, of all companies. But uh, the project lived on for a while and then got swallowed up by some other project, by somebody who wanted a piece of the pie. Mm. But anyway, uh, you know, if I had listened to people at any point during that uh, process, we would never had 100,000 users. And it, it is interesting, that, that concept, because it's one that we haven't explored and uh, haven't explored on the podcast or or in the work so far is this ability to just not listen. Cause we always talk about being curious, but, but you were being curious to the project and you must've seen something in there that said, Oh, this is worthwhile. We've got to get stuck into this. Yeah. Well, there's a lesson here about mentorship. And I think about it as I am being asked to mentor others, whether it is a lot of the startups that I have worked with in my career, or it is anybody else when you're trying to mentor people. Because well-meaning advice is one thing, but it is very hard to be on the receiving end because as a good citizen, you know, you're told to like listen to your mentors and do what they say and learn from others and be positive. But essentially being an entrepreneur, which this is all about, I think any project, whether it's in government or, you know, intrapreneur, entrepreneur, essentially you have to figure out, do these people know what they're talking about or what is it in what they're saying that's correct and what is it that you know you do need to take as a great input because you should listen to other people you just yeah. shouldn't do exactly what other people say mm. so it takes a lot of contextual knowledge a lot of confidence and and you will be wrong you know many times mm. so we'll get to that you know third question but there were also times where i should have listened and disaster ensued because I didn't.
And I suppose that there's a piece in there. I'm listening to the Undoing Project at the moment, which I'm loving. But there's a bit in that book about um, almost taking a, a contrary path to listen and understand. So yes, as you say, the mentors. If we, if I had listened to all, well, I did in my first part of my career. I listened to all my mentors and took completely the wrong path for me, and spent the rest of my career trying to change it and work back. So there's those inner voices that you hear, but there's almost sometimes it's worth, in terms of the shaping the future, to look at a contrary path to start to work. And I think that's what you're you're starting to say. Here. When did you feel it was it was successful? And and I suppose the next question is why did you leave it? Yeah. Well, I uh, when did I feel it was successful? Was I guess when people started bombarding my phone and talking to me around these events or just you know really just showing up when when the boss's boss's boss comes mm -hmm. in you know to my office and says this is a fantastic project right so that you know three levels above it was a great project you know two mm -hmm. levels down it was a horrible project <laughs> it was just you know when i started understanding that and plus when everyone wanted to partner with us yeah. Right. Yeah. So it goes that there's this inflection point where everybody thinks it's a failure. And I ha yeah. actually have another example, which might be even better in this regard. But um, and I'll tell you about it very briefly. But anyway, it, it, the, the, the time, you know, the point is very clear. It is when it goes from everybody says this is going to fail to everybody says you are the most wonderful person and no one else could have done this. And this is fantastic. Interesting. And that literally is overnight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose there's a there's a piece in there that you've got to keep yourself humble at that point because you're still in the mode and you're still progressing in there. So, so talk to me about that that leaving point about why you left. I'm always fascinated when something is successful and people leave. Everybody goes, so why did you go? Yeah. Um, well, two reasons. Um, I guess in every project you have to realize your own limitations. So mm -hmm. even though. I was doing a fantastic thing. As I said, I was there on a temporary contract. It was going to end up four years. No one leaves early, by the way. I left after three and a half because I was, I guess you could call it headhunted into Oracle, um, you know, which is nice. So that's nice to have uh, as a storyline. But I, I don't think it was that. It was just that, you know, after a little while, I, I realized that I had done what I could do with that project because I saw that the next hurdle would have to, um, make the bosses five chains up. There are many bosses in the EU. Yeah. And I, I realized that, you know, the next boss up wouldn't be as kind to the kinds of things I wanted to do. And that's really the history of a lot of the successful projects that I've done is that eventually you hit that uh, glass ceiling where you realize that if this shatters, either, you know, my boss's boss's boss gets into big trouble and, you know, it could really you know, we could do something great or it's just not worth it because uh, the the odds of this just failing or just bumping up against this very big glass ceiling are, are just against me. In my, in my case, I got a very wonderful opportunity and sort of said, you know, it was nice to get this experience, but I want to move on with my career. And I don't think that I personally could take it any further. And there's also clever, more clever people than me that should be taking it further. And, you know, I think that's what they did. Yeah, brilliant. 
So what was the other example? You said he had a short example. Yeah, well, just uh, briefly. So Mm -hmm. I did run, as you pointed out, the MIT Startup Exchange. So Mm -hmm. it was a brilliant idea, which I wish was mine. And and you'll know why, and it's relevant to the question. So the idea was, why don't we put together all of the startups that MIT has produced, you know, uh, essentially throughout its history, and then match them with corporates, you know, who are, you know, interested in startups, and they come to campus all the time. Now, Sounds like a fantastic idea that's already done, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was at the Sloan Management School at the time and I was scratching my head. Why, are, why is someone coming to me and saying, you know, we want to build this initiative? Turns out there was a need because no one had actually mapped these startups in any meaningful way. Or if they had mapped them, they hadn't talked to them. So I uh, took it on, started talking to people, discovered that nobody had talked to them really hmm. and certainly didn't know what they were up to. And there was no structured program for it. The beginning was hard, even Mm. though it seems so obvious. We walked around campus and Mm. pretty much everybody says, yeah, you could do that, but don't do it because we are already doing something on innovation. We have our own program, so please don't do it. Interesting. Right? Yep. And then as we continued, because it was my job description, right? (laughs) Um, One guy, very high up, a uh, professor wrote to the MIT president's office and said, Trond is doing this institution a disservice and he is not listening. <laughs> so I was, and I got hold of that email and I'm thinking, okay, um, well, I've heard that before. Maybe I don't listen so well, but honestly, this is what I was hired to do. So how could I do otherwise? <laughs> like, I wish it was my idea at that point. It would have been yeah. an even better story, right? Yep. And you know, literally, we just sort of fought that off and uh, built, you know, again, like a, a whole program with events and, you know, started to see some traction. Although at the moment that I knew we were about to break through, it was just a question of like months. My mm-hmm. boss said, Tron, don't you think we should give up? I mean, we're not seeing any traction here. <laughs> <Come Right. teams. laughs> yeah. So I said, Look, I kind of see it diametrically opposing. I like we are about to break through and give me one more month, right? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, okay, we'll give it one more month. And then <laughs> we ended up being one of the most successful innovation programs on campus, so successful that I think, you know, that became a problem in the end, both for him and for me. And, you know, I, I also left that program. You know, you when you become successful, you become dangerous. Mm. And I that's one it. of the big lessons. So I actually like failing more than I like succeeding for that reason. Uh, I love it. There's more to more to learn. There is, and w- what I love is a theme coming through, which is you get a job description, you get a role, and you go for it. Yep. And the person who's written the job description, the role, is starting to regret that you're in there because there's a you know there's there's a real drive for you to to get it, and and you continue, and you're exploring, and you're almost pushing the boundaries in there. And there's so many people who just take a job description. And once they hit a barrier, they don't do anything about it. They just say, okay, well, I'm not allowed to do that. That's political around here, so I don't do it. But you seem to just want to go through that. It's just great. Yeah, so that's maybe a futuristic attitude. I I spend a lot more time now on future workforce development issues in manufacturing Mm -hmm. and other sectors. And I happen to think that the way that I approach things is basically the only way you're going to succeed, I think, in the future. Mm. So I I know I'm onto something, but it is painful as you're doing it. And there it's certainly not the path path of least resistance no i would agree wholeheartedly 
So, so talk to me because it, it sounds like you've you've created a career out of creating playgrounds for yourself. Because you sound like somebody who's passionate about enjoy what you do, but there's also a piece. Well, I'm ready to move on. Let's find something else to do. So, talk to me about if you had to pick one or a theme of a playground, what would it be? Your professional playground. Yeah, I thought about that question because you gave it to me beforehand, and it's really easy for me, and it ties into what we've been started uh, starting the conversation with conversing with people that matter, uh, mm-hmm. who have thought deeply about their own field, and extracting their knowledge in some meaningful, interesting, differentiated, ideally, and certainly accessible way that you know is a little better than they would have come up with themselves if they were trying to talk about their own ideas. That really fascinates me. And I think I have that from my upbringing where my parents just really brought back smart people to our house. And I'm sure you can relate to this. Yeah. And I had like, uh, you know, these honorary professors uh, at my local university, uh, you know, show up and just uh, stay overnight. And I had these incredible conversations from I was five. Wow. And I've just enjoyed that so much. And I think mm. there's something there of bringing together strands of knowledge into one. Mm. Uh, so yes, it's a jack of all trades because that's how you find all this stuff. Mm. I guess if you want to use a metaphor, I like to pick fruit from other people's orchard and bring it back home and sort of plant it in mine, right? I'm a gardener that way. I'm, I'm you know, I, I can't just stick to my own stuff. And I suppose it's, it's playing into that famous quote by Jimi Hendrix, who says, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens, that surrounding yourself with conversations to be able to pick up the fruit or the seeds and create fruit for yourself is, is a core piece. That's what I'm hearing is, is what you love. Yeah, That is what I love. It is unfortunately not always what pays the best. So that can <laughs> frustrate people around me, but you know, yeah. I'm always, I've always been a far better salesman of other people's ideas yeah. than my own. <laughs> And that is, of course, a good thing because other people's ideas are usually or maybe always better. Um, But it does have, you know, it does have some negatives, right? Because uh, if you uh, kind of are really good at just selling your own stuff, that that, there is an economic engine to that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a trade-off. I just happen to have come to the realization that uh, I can tweak certain things and and reap the benefits of so, some experiences I've had. I just had a conversation with a friend the other week, actually, and he or last weekend, and he said, "You know, Tron, you should really start uh, harvesting more of what you're creating. You should start asking more because I don't ask, right? I just make yeah. favors." And his his point was, you know, the uh, last year you made an introduction, and you know, your friend's company is uh, now worth three hundred million dollars. Why, you know, why didn't you ask to, you know, to get something out of that favor, that introduction? Mm. And yeah, I mean, I I didn't ask, so yeah. You know. But for me, it's the principle of pay it forward. It depends what your life is about, isn't it? And I, you know, money's important as a an enabler of things, but oh, it's, it's very not important. The not the be all and end all either. So Well, yeah. I don't have a commercial fiber that way. Like no. I can create an enormous value, I hope to make outsized difference in society, but mm. monetary value for me doesn't motivate me. Like it no. would be very nice, mm. but you know, on my epitaph, I, I don't want to have anything to do with Tron created a lot of wealth. Yeah, I, I just want to say Tron was an interesting person to be around and created some great conversations. Nice. I love that. So let's go, let's go into the final question then, Tron, because I think this is the one that we've been preparing for. And, and 
the principle in here is about how you've been more wrong to be more successful. You've given us a number of examples, and maybe we've talked about it, but if you had one example where you've done this, what would it be? Yeah, and I know why you asked this one last. If you had started with this, you'd probably uh, get people to choke early on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but about, I mean, it's now more like seven years ago, I had this concept which was to build an insight network of on, only the knowledge that matters. Mm. Uh, the company you know, was and actually is still around called Yegi, Y-E-G-I-I, which actually means conversation. It fits with the flow of what we'll be talking about. Mm. Uh, because I was so passionate about a couple of things. I, I think that you know, there's this trope about information overload. And you know, it's so hard to navigate you know, how we're going to focus on things. Part of it is I thought not actually true because it's all about filtering. Part of it is true, um, but I stuck to this idea that there must be a, a better way to filter things than search engines, right? Mm -hmm. They're essentially just outsourcing the filtering to you every morning, an empty search window, you got to find out yourself. Mm -hmm. And as I was trying to build this, everyone said, the early mentor said, you know, nobody needs this and we don't understand what you're trying to build. Plus Google has already built it. So I started cataloging the world's high quality information on specific industries and specific emerging technologies. And all my mentors said, pick one technology, pick one industry, at least do that. And I didn't pick that. I, I just went on with this whole cataloging the mm -hmm. world of moving emerging tech, right? Which is mm -hmm. many, many different things. And everybody said, you know, uh, you haven't gotten any traction. You should really just give up. And at the end, I would say, you know, the tech solution that I came up with didn't really work. The contractors I brought in perhaps weren't good enough. My leadership skills uh, probably didn't cut it. Um, we almost made it several times. We did take a tiny bit of capital, more like angel capital, but we never, you know, secured a big round of any sort. And at the end of the day, it was probably about five to seven years too early to start. And mm. right now, I guess, I, you know, in a sense, I almost ruined myself uh, financially, but mostly because of the opportunity cost. It wasn't, you know, there was a lot of money being poured into the venture, mm. but it was also the opportunity cost of working it, on it for like four to seven years. Mm. So you could say tragic mistake, you know, horrible. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if you talk to people around me, many of them would say even good friends, even family would say, why did he invest so much energy in this? Yeah. And retrospect, you could say, yeah, many of them, maybe they were all right. Mm. On the other hand, I was right about the initial concept. This yes. is needed. Somebody will build this. Maybe I still will build this. Mm. And I keep trying. Mm. And I mean, in all of this desperation, as I said, I pivoted into writing for now three new books out of this material because think about it. I, the product I couldn't create, the digital Ooh. platform that solved all these things for other people, I still haven't fully built. Yeah. I have prototypes, but I learned so much because I investigated you know, all emerging technologies. I took everything I was learning at MIT, all of the professors I talked about, I distilled, basically, I have lists of the top Nobel Prize winners. I have the TED speakers. I have organized all of them into all these digital lists, and I track them digitally. Um, so I started now two podcasts, 
mm-hmm. where I you know invite those same people nice. to come on the show and share from their experience. So in a sense, maybe it's a long-term productization play, mm-hmm. and it's going to take me maybe 20 years instead of the six months that I had promised my family it would take to build this thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, mo- most of what I do right now, I work for two investment firms, one corporate and one early stage. I do some consulting and I work near full-time for a startup on something super exciting, which is changing, uh, you know, perhaps the way that 1 billion manufacturing workers are going to be uh, trained and, you know, the stuff they do. And all of that really flows from the insights that I learned in a startup that most people would consider a total failure. Interesting. That's that's fascinating to me because it's every as you were going through that, all I was thinking was everybody tells me the value of data, the data in your business, but it's also the data that we hold when we're needing to have conversations, make decisions as leaders, and and as you say, if your conversations is your future, then there's your data. All these conversations you can have through the network, you you've built it. So yeah, fascinating. Well, I probably have material through the combination of. Uh, the Yegi knowledge process that I built, which mm-hmm. I have in a demo prototype for myself and for those few people who are sort of looking at it. And plus the stuff that I learned from interviewing right now, a hundred people, but with another podcast, 25 episodes and, you know, rapidly rising, right? So several mm-hmm. hundred interviews. Uh, and it's not just the interviews, but I learned so much uh, transcribing them, thinking about them, even starting to pitch them. So you learn things because you don't, it's not just a conversation that disappears. Mm. It becomes, you know, part of you. Mm. So every time it's almost like you're appropriating part of the people you speak to. It's very strange. It is. You know, uh, someone, you know this because you, know. you interview people. Mm. And when you engage with somebody over time, you enter so deeply their kind of epistemic world, I guess, would be the advanced terminology, but Mm. essentially you just, you know, you understand more where they're coming from. So it's not just about, oh, this guy wrote a book. And most Mm. people I have on the podcast have written books. Books, yeah. It's not about their books. It's about why did they write that book? What pivoted them into putting, you know, and why did they introduce that example? And where is that coming from? And, you know, the kinds of stuff you're asking me about. I mean, you mm. can't hide on a podcast. You, no. you can try, mm. but you can, no one can hide over an hour. No, no, I would agree. And it, it was fascinating to me is the two books that you've got. So one uh, I just wanted to briefly talk about is the, the pandemic book that you've written and the learnings out of that. I would love to know, you know, so people listening, Pandemic Aftermath is the title. What is your, because we're talking hybrid working now. We're talking uh, in leadership terms, how do you cope with that? What's the, the subject that you pick out of that that you would give to people who are listening? I mean, the short answer is that the pandemic aftermath is going to be one of augmentation, right? It's mm-hmm. augmenting humans was a nice concept, you know, that took very long to realize technologically, but there never was a use case. There never was a real true need not to meet face-to-face, and there never really was a true need to expand beyond kind of the office worker. Well, in order to produce the things that we need to produce, our factories now need to be somewhat virtual. Um, Everybody needs to 
be able to get their goods and have you know alternate sort of routes of producing those things. So anything from like the acceleration of 3D printing and distributed production to augmenting what individual workers do um, to entertainment and all of the things that our kids had to do. You know, I thought EdTech solutions were pretty decent. Yep. Uh, and I thought Zoom was an okay conferencing solution, which we all thought for a while. But the thing is, all of these solutions, they were just really, really early stage explorations of what is coming now. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really seen those products in their final state, mm-hmm. but I know with the amount of money and energy, but most importantly, the need. We have changed fundamentally, I think, over the last year. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was pandemic aftermath. What I thought you were going to ask me about was the book where I wrote about failure. <laughs> you can talk about that one. I was, I was fascinated because I've had so many conversations this week, but go for that one. <laughs> well, I wrote about disruption games, I called it, you know, yeah. using kind of the metaphor of the Olympic Games. I think you have to train for failure and success the same way you train for sports. Mm. Um, so I, the subtitle is How to Thrive on Serial Failure. <laughs> and again, you know, I, I talk about my failures, but I mostly talk about MIT startups and how they pivot and fail even at that level. So think about it. You know, these are the, mm-hmm. some of the brightest young minds and sometimes professors of the world. And many of those startups fail too. Yep. Or they pivot. Um, of course, they pivot in extraordinary ways mm. that wouldn't perhaps happen with others. So I write about this process of thriving on serial failure. Essentially, I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. It's not about seeking to be more wrong. Mm. It is about deeply embracing being wrong. And then there's one important thing that I want to say, and that's the crux of the book. Mm. Silicon Valley has taught us to fail fast. And there are many good reasons to fail fast when you want to make money. But as yeah. I've indicated to you, if your goal is wider than that, Actually, even if your goal is earning money, failing fast is sometimes a short circuit. Yeah. You need, in my opinion, maybe I'm too Freudian for, for a UK audience, but basically <laughs> I think that unless you embrace your own failure deeply, um, you don't learn yeah. deeply. Yeah. And that I'm- takes time. I would totally agree with that. I think that's the the depth of that and looking to yourself first. And I think that's that's been my learning. But I think you're right. Maybe the UK culture is is not ready for that. But I think there's a lot of people who've started to do that over this last year um, to think more deeply than they've done before, which is you know in a sad state as a benefit. So yeah, fascinating. And I love the playground analogy in that. So I've got to end if if we need to end because this is probably the future tech piece we're doing something on vr we're looking at you know fascinatingly i felt we're just exploring it to start with we've got a product in there but when i started to talk to you on the podcast i felt that you had much more knowledge than i do in this space so talk to me about that book and what that is telling us, yeah. Yeah, so thank you. Future tech is, uh, I think. don't think it's true, by the way. I don't have more knowledge than you on uh-huh. VR. You are actually exploring it together mm. with a, a, a few people I have on, on my podcast. I just had one uh, recorded an episode with a guy who has a, his digital avatar is now running around on doing speaking gigs around the world. And he <laughs> nice. was pointing out that his digital avatar can do simultaneous speaking gigs, which I thought was uh, very cool. 
Absolutely. Um, but yes, Future Tech is my most recent book, and it's about. Uh, I mean, the subtitle is how to capture value from disruptive industry trends. Mm -hmm. Trends is perhaps the wrong word here because I do again speak about the next decade, and I think there's five core technologies that people should worry quite a bit about. Uh, not worry, actually, maybe just more embrace and understand. So AI, pretty obvious. Blockchain as a kind of financial decentralized protocol that's going to be relevant far, far beyond the finance world. Robotics, because it's deeply scary to some people, but in fact, it's just actually potentially quite empowering to have machines work alongside us if we just understand and, and embrace the opportunities of that. I mean, there are startups now that can train you from being a metal worker to operating robots in, uh, you know, in a week. Mm. So these things are getting easier and easier, yeah. but you do need to get, engage with it. And then synthetic biology, just because, um, you know, it really is changing our world. Here you are now treating the organic world as if it were engineering technology. And, and the consequences, the impacts of that are, are enormous. And, and we are already starting to see products that are synthetically created at mass scale that will change the fabric of, of, of you know, anything you see around you. You, 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 know, you see a house, mm -hmm. there will be biological components there. You, you see a wall, you see a table. All of the, these things will not just be digital, but they will be actually manufactured in a synthetic fashion that adds capability to them. Um, so it's not just about bacteria and, 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 and you know, that, that kind of thing. And then 3D printing, I, I am pretty interested in that as a phenomenon because of its distributed nature. Mm. Um, desktop metal started printing metal parts, but then they also a uh, month ago started printing wood. <laughs> and you know, the impact of that for the world sustainable recycled wood being able to be printed as opposed to glued together, you know, like an MDG board. Wow. I mean, the, the consequences of that are, are actually pretty enormous. And all of these five will get us quite far this decade. AI will get us shortest out of those five mm. because AI is really just starting. We are probably entering another AI fall, if not winter, uh, because you know we're just not going to get where some people want us to get this far. The deep mm -hmm. learning paradigms just aren't good enough, and you know we're hitting a brick wall there. And I think that discussion is going to kick off in 2022. But um, the combination of these five in a meaningful assemblage and understood well across society will actually change us fundamentally. Now that's just short term. My book is about the next decade. Um, I am writing a book about the next 50 years. Wow. So that's a long-term project. Mm. And, and there, there are many, many other things that come into play. But for this decade, these five technologies really are what we should focus on. And, you know, my message is don't just kind of read the, the first thing that a consulting firm or a blog says about this. And, and also don't just get a PhD in one topic. Either approach is going to get you into trouble you essentially have to be a polymath. Mm. And so I'm passionately maybe arguing for my sick uh, uh, startup, basically, you know, yeah. that uh, everyone has to become a polymath. Mm. But I want to enable everyone to be and have the chance to become a polymath. And I fundamentally believe in that. And I will 
make an impact and I will make a dent in that. Maybe not through my startup, maybe through the, the, the other companies that I work with at the moment. They maybe have a bigger chance at success. I have learned some things, Colin, which is when you are not the only um, chance of finding your own hero's journey, you can align yourself with another hero. Yeah. And, and that, I, I, I mean, that is perhaps a much better strategy because yeah. we are not always going to be number one. I am maybe more a number three, <laughs> you yeah. know, or a number yeah. five or yeah. number seven, yeah. but I am a pretty good number seven. So there yeah. are a lot, if I pick, you know, winners to associate myself with and help them achieve their goals, I think I can make great change in the world. So basically to translate that into Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, you're either a Samwise Ganji, depending on how high you are. Yeah. Or you're a, or you're a Neville Longbottom in terms of, you know, uh, doing that final act, which are two great characters for me. <laughs> I, I love that. There, there's always a, uh, there's always a good reason to introduce Harry Potter. I, I oh, absolutely. Tronda has been brilliant to talk to you. If you had to leave one thing for people to think about, you know, for this, this coming year, what would it be? What would be your final comment to people? Fail slowly and painfully. <laughs> and for those listening and thinking, oh, that sounds too much. It's a good. Well, process. I'm an upbeat guy. So, you know, exactly. you can come out of it. All right. <laughs> Positive thinking, <laughs> fail slowly and painfully. I love that. Tronda, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. If people want to find more about you, how would they do that? Oh, that's pretty easy. As long as they can spell my name or spell Future Tech or Futurized or uh, any, any, anywhere. I mean, they could just uh, link. My name is uh, so unique that it's all over. Uh, so Trond, you know, Norwegian D at the end. Uh, Undheim, horrible spelling. But if you have you know, any strands of my name will, will, will find me on the internet. And I would love to, to talk and reach out to, to, to many of you. Future Tech is uh, perhaps a little harder to search on the internet, but it exists yeah. on Amazon and other places. So there are plenty of ways to find me. And we'll put details into the podcast as well at the bottom so they can do that. Trond, absolute pleasure, sir. Look forward to having some more conversations with you in the future. And if some of your predictions work out, you might be still alive in 50 years to see whether your predictions actually land in there. So that'd be good. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. We hope to be alive yet. Definitely. Good. Excellent, sir. Good. Take care. All right. You too. What a conversation. Uh, if I could just get Trond on a regular basis to this podcast, it'd be great just to explore different things, whether it's his work on healthcare, other things about looking into the future of what we're going to face and the consequences of possible futures. But I think the, the key bit that stuck out for me was the consequences of actions and inactions. Looking back at some of the history, looking back at some of the product launches or other things that have failed. And that concept of post-mortem, uh, around the ideas and thoughts and looking at history in a different way so therefore we can learn for the future. So I loved that conversation. Hopefully you did. Love to hear your feedback and hopefully we'll welcome you on another episode of the Leadership Tells podcast very shortly.